0: Welcome to Mother's Day Chapel Hill. I'm sorry that we can't be here together in person. I always love it when I see all of the ladies arrayed in their finest and all of the men gussied up and sitting right next to their ladies behaving themselves. We certainly know the influence that our women have on us, don't we men? Although I saw a cartoon this week that set some of that in perspective Peppermint Patty asks Charlie Brown a question. She says, what surprises you most about the coronavirus? And Charlie Brown responds, it has accomplished what no woman has been able to do. Cancel all sports, shut down all bars, and keep men at home. Well, here we are, men and women and kids in our homes, but we're worshiping the Lord together. So welcome to Mother's Day worship at Chapel Hill. We are continuing in a sermon series called Elevate Others. That's part of our uh, mission statement. And we thought it well at a time when it would be very easy for us to turn our thoughts and our attentions inward to continue to remind ourselves of what Scripture says about the importance of encouraging and lifting up others. And so today, in acknowledging this special day, we are going to Elevate Mothers. Mothers. And I want to start by asking this question of you moms. Can you think of a time when you misplaced your child? If you have that time, why don't you tell us about it in the chat? And while you're at it, why don't you point at the kid that you lost and chuckle about it? We may be able to laugh about it now, but I'm sure that was no laughing matter when it happened. I remember one of the times one of the times that we lost one of our kids It was three year old Cooper. I don't remember the details though very well. And so I went to my wife this week and I said, Can you refresh my memory? And she replied in very tartly two words your fault. I knew I was in trouble, but I settled in for a recounting, a very passionate recounting of the story. Here's what happened. We were at church one night, and someone in the kitchen needed some help from Cindy. So she came up to me, and she said, can you watch Cooper? Apparently, I said, no problem. I say apparently because I haven't the foggiest recollection of this conversation. So we're taking her word for it. But Cindy trundled off to the kitchen. I went about my business. About 45 minutes later, Cindy comes back, and she says, where's Cooper? And then I offered the foolish and fatal words that have been uttered by so many husbands before me. I don't know. She said, what do you mean you don't know? You're supposed to be watching Cooper. I said, I know I'm supposed to be watching Cooper, but I don't know where he is. And so we called out for everyone to help us and we scattered throughout the property searching for our lost son and we found him. He was out in the parking lot, in between rows of cars, in the dark, but he was fine, right? No harm, no foul, right? Dads, not right, moms. My sweet Cindy, the mother of my children, was livid. This morning for our Mother's Day story, I want to turn to an account of Mary in which we see her in a slightly different light. Normally we imagine her as she is seated there in the stable, surrounded by all of the lovely animals, suckling her child. That's what we imagine. But that was 12 years ago. Now Mary is raising a teenager. And in case you hadn't heard, that can sometimes be a challenge, even for Mary. So if you'd like to turn with me to Luke chapter 2 for this wonderful Mother's Day story, beginning at verse 41. Now Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. I don't know who's to blame for what happened in this morning's story. So let's just blame Joseph, because I'll bet that's a pretty good bet, don't you? Joseph had led his family 80 miles down from Nazareth to Jerusalem to participate in the Passover, one of the big three annual pilgrimages that every Jewish family tried to participate in. And uh, it was particularly meaningful, I suspect, for Jesus because he was 12 years old, which meant that next year he was going to go through his bar mitzvah and be welcomed into manhood. So this was a, a big year for them, but we're not told anything about the actual festival itself. But after Passover, as they were getting ready to return the 80 miles to Nazareth, here's what I imagine happened. Mary, who wanted to walk with the women, says to Joseph, will you watch Jesus? And Joseph, who is yucking it up with his buddies, replies over his shoulder, yeah, no problem. And so off they go. They travel a day's journey, about 20, 22 miles. It would be like us walking to Brimerton. And when they arrive, they stop for the night. Mary finds Joseph and she says, Where's Jesus? And Joseph replies with those foolish and fatal words. Guys, do you remember what they are? I don't know. I won't speculate on what else the Blessed Virgin might have said in that moment. But suffice it to say, they tore up the camp looking for Jesus. No joy. And since they had already traveled one whole day, they spent a sleepless night in camp before they got up the next morning at first light to retrace their one-day journey back to Jerusalem. So by the time they got back, it had now been two days without Jesus. So let's pick up the rest of the story. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. that I must be in my father's house. And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. His mother treasured up all these things in her heart. That's not the first time we hear that phrase in Luke's gospel. In fact, if you turn back to chapter 1 we see that right after the shepherds showed up at Bethlehem to announce what the angels had said to them, we read that Mary treasured up all of these things and pondered them in her heart. And this morning's story repeats that same phrase. So I want to begin by asking this first question. How did Luke know this? How did Luke know what Mary treasured in her heart, this inner thought of hers? Well, the only way that would be possible was if she told him. I think that's what happened. The first part of Luke's gospel, he tells us that he actually talked to a bunch of people and and researched this thing. I think what he did was interview Jesus' mother, Mary. If that's true, if that assumption is correct, then we are getting a first-hand account of this incident from Mary's perspective. Every parent has moments in their child's life that they treasure. A moment when you make that mental bookmark and you say, I will never forget this. And that was obviously one of those moments for Mary. So let's take a closer look, shall we? When when they arrive, Mary is furious and Joseph is silent. I always assumed it was because Joseph was so mad that he dare not say a word or he'd lose control of his temper. My wife said, you got it all wrong. You are reading that all wrong. Here's what is really happening. She said, this is a mama bear moment. And when a mama bear's cubs are in danger, everyone, especially papa bear, better steer a wide berth. Joseph was keeping his head down and his mouth shut because he did not want to stir up mama bear. She was on a rampage. So there's the gospel according to Cindy. And, women, if you want to vote in favor of that, you may do so in the chat. Men, don't even waste your time. After three days of a fruitless search, Mary and Joseph make their way into the temple square. Maybe they were going there just to pray. And when they arrive, they suddenly hear a familiar voice and they look up and they see Jesus surrounded by the religious hotshots of the time. Asking them questions. Fielding their questions with great answers. He is holding court with the most esteemed religious minds of the day. I can imagine Mary, he probably didn't even notice when she just storms her way across the courtyard. Scattering Pharisees right and left. All of them that were stupid enough to be standing between her and her son. And she comes up to Jesus and she lets him have it. Son... Why have you treated us so? What's fascinating is that the Greek word is not son. It's actually child. Technon. She says, child, why have you treated us so? She is dressing down her little boy. And then she plays the dad card. You know the dad card, right? You've heard it when mom says, you just wait until your father gets home. That's what she's doing here. She says, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And Joseph is just in the background, nodding his head up and down, politely, obediently. And then Jesus responds. This is significant because these are the first words that we ever hear in the Gospels from the mouth of the Lord. First recorded words of Jesus. So are you ready? Here they are. Calmly, Jesus replies, why were you looking for me? Could we just agree that that, that might be 12-year-old Jesus talking there? Why were you looking for me? What else were they supposed to be doing? Should they have just gone on up to Nazareth and hope that he hitched a ride when he was done doing whatever he was doing? He may be on the verge of manhood, but he was still under their roof. He was still their boy. What else were they going to do but retrace the one day's journey to find him when they discovered he was not with them? Why are you looking for me? Can we just admit that the opening salvo are the words of a young man who had no idea of the anguish that he had put his parents through? But then then comes his punchline. And this is worth the price of admission. Jesus said, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? This is fascinating because uh, the the word house is not even in the original Greek. I mean, literally, the, the text says, did you not know that I must be in my father's? Literally, you have to fill in the blank. In my father's what? In my father's house? That's pretty good for context, but it could just as easily have been, did you not know that I had to be about my father's affairs, about my father's business? Any way you cut it, though, Jesus is not just talking about a building. Jesus is declaring something about his calling, about his authority, about the destiny that had been laid out before him. Here's another thing that I find fascinating about the story It's the last time we ever see Joseph in the Bible. After this, he disappears into the mists of biblical history. Tradition tells us that he died when Jesus was still a young man. So it makes it even more interesting to me, I think, when Mary complains bitterly that Jesus' father was looking for him. Because Jesus, in essence, replies, no, he wasn't. My father knew where I was all along. And so in that moment, in that little verse, we see Joseph, the gracious earthly father of Jesus, receding into the background. And we see the heavenly father of Jesus moving into the place of prominence that he would hold for the rest of Jesus' earthly life, the place of prominence that he had held for all of eternity. There's obviously a, a shift, a shift of authority, a shift of relationship that is beginning to take place here, and Mary is flabbergasted. She is in stunned silence with what Jesus says. She doesn't reply. We don't have any more recorded words from her. In fact, we are told that they did not understand what he had said, and so they return home. They return home with Mary continuing to mull these things, and the story ends with this phrase, Mary treasured up all these things in her heart. She mulled them, she considered them, she curated them. Everything that she had just experienced, that which she understood, as well as all of the mysteries that she did not understand, she treasured all of these things in her heart. If you've seen the movie The Hobbit by Tolkien, uh, you'll remember the dragon Smaug. Smaug was the guardian of this great treasure trove that sat in the uh, dwarf kingdom of Erebor, and he guarded it furiously. And as I was thinking about this idea of treasuring, I realized that one of the amazing things about my wife is the way that she guards the treasure trove of memories of our children. She recalls them instantly, and she has always been very intentional about that. I remember when we were on sabbatical in Scotland back in 2007, uh, and Cooper was about 10 years old at the time. He was still of an age that when we were walking together, he would slip his hand over and take my hand, and we would walk hand in hand, holding hands as father and son. And every time Cindy saw that, she would lag back behind us and take a picture of dad and son walking hand in hand because she knew she better preserve this moment, this memory that was not going to last much longer. Mary came to treasure this moment that she reflected upon that took place in the temple. It It meant so much to her, obviously, that she managed to persuade Luke to include the story in his gospel. It's the only account that we have of Jesus in his childhood in all four of the gospels, but that's how much this meant to her. It was a defining moment for her. She saw her son in a new light. It it set the trajectory for their future, for their relationship. Of course she had always known that her son was special. The angels told her that he was special. The shepherds told her that he was special. The magi did too. All of them told Mary, this is a very special kid you're going to have. As special as it can be, he's going to be the son of God. And she hadn't forgotten that, surely. But it had been 12 years. 12 years of diapers. 12 years of cooking and cleaning and educating and wiping sniffles. Not to mention the addition of a bunch of other kids to the equation. So by the time Jesus was 12 years old she had 8 more children Mary could be forgiven if the awe and wonder that attended the birth of Jesus might have faded just a bit. But in this moment in the temple she is snapped back into reality as she watched her 12-year-old son hold the religious leaders spellbound, as she listened to his composed response to her rather frantic question, it suddenly struck her. Oh my goodness. I'm raising the Messiah. My son is the Son of God. She realized that this child, because that's what she called him in her anger, was not a child at all, that he was on his way to manhood, a journey that would take him out of their home, out of Nazareth, out into a world that would end up being a very cruel world to fulfill the destiny for which God the Father had sent him. Mary did not understand all of the implications of that she couldn't possibly had, but as she reflected on this, she treasured what she knew to be this life defining moment for all of them. Turns out that this is one of those days when Cooper gets all of the airtime. It's all Cooper all the time. I'm going to tell you another Cooper story. Sorry, Rachel, if you're watching this, you'll have to save, we'll save you up for another one. But here's another Cooper story. Cooper had significant developmental issues in his early years of life. He had no small motor skills and very few large ones. He never spoke to anyone outside of the family and rarely spoke to us. He had no friends and no interest in making friends and he never, ever, ever looked anyone in the eye. In fact, every once in a while, Cindy would grab him by the cheeks and force his face to look at hers and say, Cooper, look at me. Cooper, look at me. When we Took Cooper in to be evaluated prior to his kindergarten year, we watched as the counselor worked with him and he failed one test after another after another. And in that moment, kind of a sickening moment, we knew that our idea of what it meant to be a parent of our son had just shifted radically. And so we went to work. We, we got him into all kinds of therapy and Cindy worked with him every day and we developed an educational plan with the school district and they provided a, a paraeducator for which we've always been really grateful and, and then we just readjusted our expectations. This was going to be our new normal. Now if that counselor in that meeting had told us that six years later, Cooper would be elected by his fifth grade class to be their graduation speaker and that he would stand up in front of a room full of students and parents and deliver his speech complete with eye contact with the entire audience, we would have never believed it possible. I don't think his teachers would have either because they were standing in the back weeping as they listened to Cooper's speech. And it was in that moment we suddenly had a glimpse of the friendly, outgoing, articulate, uh, gregarious man that Cooper would one day become. It was an epiphany for us. It was a life-shifting, life-changing moment that is as vivid to date as it was 20 years ago when it happened. That moment in the, the temple was just such an epiphany for Mary. A moment when she saw her son in a new light that would change her relationship with him forever. Obviously, Mary's child was unique. There's only one Messiah, only one son of God. But moms and all of you surrogate moms out there, I need to remind you that each of your children is also unique Each of your children has been created for God, by God for a a purpose. Each of them has a, a destiny to be fulfilled. You, I guarantee you, you don't understand what that might be yet. You can't possibly see it in all of its fullness, but you must believe that it is true. And you must treasure the mystery of this. I want you to remember that you are only a caretaker of that child. They do not belong to you. You are stewarding them until the time when God says, okay, time to let them go. I'm ready. Let her go. Let him go. I have great plans, but you have got to release them. And I wonder, moms, do you believe that about your kids? We work so hard in preparing them in so many ways, what we feed them, how we care for them, how we clothe them, where we educate them. But do you believe the the most important thing that God has this claim upon your child's life? And do you see your primary parenting task as helping them to discover that claim and then releasing them into it? It is the single most important parenting responsibility that you possess. And I want to say, I wonder how God is using even this lockdown time to accomplish this work in your child's life. I know there are many of you that are ready to pull your hair out You are so done with quarantine. You are so done with trying to figure out clever ways to entertain and educate your kids that you're about ready to go crazy. But I want to assure you of something. 20 years from now, you're going to be gathered around your Thanksgiving table, all of your clan, and you're going to reminisce upon this era. And you might joke a little bit about how the challenges of it and and that that one uncle is going to boast how it was so much harder on him than it was anyone else. But you're not going to be focusing on the hardships of this time. What you will remember and treasure are those uninterrupted days that you shared with your children. Something that will likely never be repeated again in your lifetime. One young Chapel Hill mom tells me that she has tried to ask her kids every day during this quarantine, okay, what was the best thing about today? Don't you love putting that spin on it? And she tells me that nearly every time, the answer is always the same, mommy and daddy school. They love the fact that both mommy and daddy are teaching them. And you may be tired of this right now. But one day, you are going to treasure these memories, and so will your kids, because God is going to use this time to link your hearts together and to prepare their hearts for the kingdom work that He has for them to do. I'm going to share one last Cooper story. When he was in the third grade, uh, he wanted to ask Cindy something. He wanted to get her attention. Cindy was down on her knees working on some task, and And I'll tell you honestly, multitasking is not one of Cindy's spiritual gifts. She is a fantastically focused woman. And so Cooper wasn't getting her attention. And so finally in frustration, Cooper walked over to her, grabbed her by the cheeks, and looked at her and said, Mommy, look at me. Mommy, look at me. You have no idea how what you are doing, even in this hard time, is shaping and aligning the vision that your children have of a destiny that God has created them for. For that moment when suddenly they take hold of their life, they take hold of their purpose, they take hold of their destiny, and you find that you are now the number one cheerleader as they pursue that which God has created them to be. So even in this hard time particularly in this hard time I want to urge you as best you are able treasure up all these things in your heart Lord God we uh, we ask for your help to do this especially when things are hard when they're challenging when we're weary when we're exhausted when we're frustrated when we're bored It is easy for us to forget the momentous time that we are a part of. And so, Lord, I ask that you would renew the sense of vision and excitement and destiny in the hearts of every mother here, every woman here who speaks into the lives of other children. I pray, God, that that they would leave this moment empowered and excited about the greatest call upon their life as a parent or as a surrogate parent, which is this, to help that child discover that they are loved by God, gifted by God, and called by God. And then they do their very best to empower them to fulfill that destiny. Lord, I ask that you would help us to treasure these moments in our hearts right now, that they might serve your kingdom purpose, both now and now